Hi there, it's Felicity Nelson here. I've been working on some of our specials newsletters recently, launching Oncology Republic earlier this year and helping edit Allergy and Respiratory Republic. I really missed you all, so I wanted to jump back on here and share one of the interviews I did for Allergy and Respiratory. And as you'll probably know by now, we've launched another podcast called The Tea Room, which is specifically for GPs. Our reporter Frankie is hosting that one. You can check it out by searching for The Tea Room on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There were two winners of this year's Clinical Trial of the Year Award. One group investigated a new imaging technique for prostate cancer. The other clinical trial looked at patients who come to the ED with a collapsed lung or pneumothorax. In this clinical trial, they wanted to find out if it was better to watch and wait, or whether it was better to intervene by putting a plastic tube into the patient's chest to drain the collected air and help the lung reinflate. This episode, I speak with Dr. Emma Ball, a respiratory specialist at the Royal Hobart Hospital, who was involved in this trial. Emma, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invite. Can you describe the trial that won this award? Sure. So um, basically, we did a trial looking at conservative versus interventional treatment um, for primary spontaneous pneumothorax. And basically, it was a multi-centre. So we had 24 sites over Australia and New Zealand um, from basically from July 2011 to March 2017. And it was a combination of both rural and sort of metropolitan hospitals. And we looked at patients from the ages of about 14 to 50 with what we call a a primary spontaneous pneumothorax, which is basically when the lung has collapsed in a lung that is already, is not known to have any underlying lung disease. And basically they were randomized to either the intervention um, or conservative arm. So basically they either underwent sort of observation treatment or they actually underwent and had a chest tube put in. Um, And we actually managed to enroll sort of 316 patients over that period of time for which 162 were basically allocated to the conservative arm and 154 were allocated across to the intervention arm. And then we then followed them up um, during that eight-week period with the idea to look to see basically whether leaving the pneumothorax alone, so not putting a chest tube in, was sort of an acceptable treatment option and to see that by eight weeks that that the collapsed lung basically had come back up again um, and that basically the risk of recurrence would be less due to the fact that it improved lung healing and that by leaving it alone, you'd have higher levels of patient satisfaction, sort of less time off work um, and less time in hospital. And can you just describe what's the purpose of putting in a tube when someone's lungs collapsed? Yeah, so when the lung collapses down, there's air around that lung and there's, and there's, there's air leaking out of the lung. And so by putting a tube into that space where that air is leaking, it allows that air to sort of come out of that chest cavity, which then allows that lung to sort of reinflate. Sure. And can you talk me through what that looks like from the perspective of a doctor in a hospital? Yeah. So basically when we, so they, they came in and they were enrolled to either the intervention or the um, conservative arm. And with the conservative arm, they basically got an initial assessment looking at their basic OBS um, and symptoms. And then we just observed them for four hours in the emergency department, um, obviously measured the size of the pneumothorax. Um, if their oxygen saturations were above 92%, they didn't require oxygen. And basically after that four hours, if their, their observations had remained stable, they had a chest X-ray, um, and which didn't, wasn't showing any signs of um, tension pneumothorax, um, and they were able to get up and walk around, then basically they were discharged home after that. 
And then what we did for follow-up is that we did a, just a sort of clinical, just observation follow-up at the first 24 to 72 hours, just to touch base to see how they were doing from observations and symptoms. And then they didn't get their first chest x-ray until the two-week mark. And then they were followed up every two weeks up until the eight-week mark, with the idea being that we were looking for full resolution by eight weeks. With the intervention arm, they came in, and if they were randomised, then what we would do is, because there was still a lot of discussion about aspiration versus actually putting a chest tube in, what we did is to try and incorporate both of them is that we inserted a small ball chest tube, which was basically about 12 French, and attached it to an underwater sealed drain and basically let that drain for an hour, which was basically the equivalent of, of doing a simple aspiration. And then we did a chest x-ray at that point. And if their symptoms had reduced down and the pneumothorax was now small and the tube was no longer bubbling, then basically what we did is we sort of closed off that tube. So rather than take the tube out, closed it off with using the three-way tap and then watched it for four hours like we did in the observation arm and then repeated the chest x-ray. And if we found on the repeat chest x-ray that the lung had basically collapsed back down again, we then opened up the tube and then allowed it to redrain again and then they were admitted and then treated as per the admitting consultant. But what it basically meant was that they didn't have to go through two procedures, so they didn't have to have an aspiration and then see the lung come back down again to then have another chest tube put in. Um, so we were then able to incorporate both of those. And then obviously once they were admitted under the treating physician, it was up to them whether they used suction and their ongoing treatment after that. And then they both followed the same, so both conservative and intervention followed the same follow-up pathway. As I said, having this um, clinical 24 to 72 hour visit. And then after that, every two weeks, they would have an x-ray until the x-ray basically showed full resolution. And then we looked at their time off work, their pain relief, basically their patient satisfaction scores. So why might this be relevant to GPs? Well, certainly the demographic that present with the primary spontaneous pneumothorax are generally the young, fit, healthy, tall, lean males. And so a lot of the their primary port of call will be their, their local GP if they've had some breathlessness or some chest pain, and they'll present to them first. Um, and obviously, from then they'll get investigated, and the GPs obviously send them for a chest X-ray. And I suppose if you're certainly a rural GP and you're seeing a pneumothorax on there and you've got a patient that's sort of otherwise hemodynamically stable, it certainly provides an option now um, to consider basically conservative treatment, and it's certainly not urgent that they necessarily have to go and present to the emergency department for urgent sort of intercostal catheter insertion. To give me a bit more background, why might these patients be having these collapsed lungs? So we're not always totally sure. As I said, there does seem to be this demographic of these tall, lean patients that seem to present. A lot of the time it's due to congenital blebs, so small little apical pockets. Sometimes there's thought that there's um, these pores or holes that could relate to it. Uh, But it's obviously also very important with the younger demographic, obviously, is to know their smoking history, specifically their marijuana and bong use as well, because that leads to an increased risk of these cysts developing, especially up at the apices of the lungs. And with the uh, watch and wait approach that you had in your trial, was that associated with fewer adverse events or negative outcomes? Yeah, because what we saw that basically that those that were treated with the intercostal catheters, obviously, because... The conservative arm got discharged straight away, whereas the intercostal catheters, they therefore then have to come into hospital. So they spent more days in hospital, um, which then also resulted in spending more days of work. If they had a persistent air leak, there was a chance that they were more likely to need some surgery. Um, And then there's complications get associated with chest pain, so pain that can get associated with it. And also that we noted that on the patient satisfaction scores, they obviously reported worse on that. And then, as I said, we talked about this um, recurrence rate as well within that first 12 months. And what I heard was that your trial, uh, even just since you've concluded it, has already started to shift practice. Is that true in Australia? 
Yeah, well, that was quite interesting because, um, as I said, Dr. Graham Simpson was one of the initial um, people that came up with the idea. And basically what was difficult was actually trying to convince his emergency department to actually put chest tubes in these patients because they thought it was ethically in, un, incorrect as they were so used to just observing them. And I have to say, because I started the trial over in WA when I was doing my advanced training and first year consultancy, um, and it did take a lot of time to try and reassure people that basically just doing nothing with these patients was okay. And I, and I think in a couple, the first couple of them, we actually admitted them overnight. And I have to admit, the first time I did it as well, I actually admitted the patient overnight just to reassure myself that actually that they were fine. And just with simple analgesia, their symptoms settled down and then they were able to be discharged home. So what's the takeaway message for doctors? I think the thing to take away is that uh, although obviously chest tube was the be all and end all is that I think it's always good to always think back and actually question why and whether it is the most appropriate thing and sometimes basically doing less is actually more and to take away from this that conservative treatment basically in our trial spared 85% of patients with sort of moderate to large pneumothoraces from actually having to have a chest tube put in. We saw a lower recurrence rate and it's certainly what we talk about now challenges the current guidelines that we see from the American and British thoracic guidelines, which are actually currently being rewritten at the moment. And I think now for a certain demographic, as I said, with patients that aren't obviously fly in, fly out, that are local, that can have sort of clinical review, then it certainly gives them another option um, rather than having to have a chest tube or have simple aspiration done. Who else was involved in this trial? So we had a huge amount of people involved. So we dramatically managed to get about 24 sites over Australia um, and New Zealand which was fantastic collaboration and it was a collaboration of emergency department physicians, respiratory physicians, cardiothoracic surgeons. Um, so the main people that were involved was, um, so Professor Simon Brown was our um, first author um, who was the clinical lead over from the clinical research department in WA, uh, Dr. Kyle Perrin and Dr. Richard Beasley were the two main um, respiratory physicians from WA, uh, sorry, from New Zealand. Um, and then we had a collection of people from New Zealand, sorry, not from New Zealand, from Victoria um, and New South Wales. Um, and we, when I moved to Tasmania, I managed to recruit the Royal Hobart Hospital down here. So we had one site from Tasmania. Fantastic. And are you doing some follow-up studies as well? Um, we are actually following up these patients for five years, to, again, to look a bit further more in more detail at that recurrence rate. Um, and there had been some previous talk about possibly considering sort of secondary pneumothoraces, but as yet, um, we haven't gone down that route. I think we're all recovering. It was quite a long trial with a lot of hard work, but we've been very, very lucky. Um, we were very lucky with the research funding we got um, with the publication in the New England Journal, and then obviously more recently with this award. And more generally, is there kind of a trend, uh, you know, once a patient gets to the emergency department, is there kind of a preference towards intervening as opposed to watching and waiting? And does, is this study sort of an example of, you know, uh, something that could be replicated in across a few different uh, areas of treatment? I think what it shows is that you can certainly form these collaborations between all these different specialities to sort of readdress and relook at some of the treatment options that we do do for some diseases. And certainly with the wait list that we have and um, increased presentations to the emergency department, certainly if we've got options like watch and wait, then that takes away a lot of the pressure from these patients when they present to the ED and the resources and time that it can take to look after them. For sure. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Not at all. Thank you very much for having me.
You've been listening to Allergy and Respiratory Republic. You can find out more on our website, puffandstuff.com.au.